MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, August 25th. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill, and with me, as always, is real-life lawyer and just tons of fun, Andrew Torres. <laughs> hey, G, thank you so much. So we have so much going on. We have our Patreon-only <laughs> next Monday, uh, yes. which I am, I cannot wait. I love our patrons. I love the fact that I'm going to get to see you in person. There's just nothing better than that. Um, we have our show for today, which is great. Uh, but first, we have the only thing better than those two things, uh, which is to thank our new patrons who have supported us over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as a buck an episode. So if you're listening to this and you haven't supported us, you are literally stealing. No, wait, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, our patrons, we love our patrons. And uh, if you're not a patron, we, we, we love you less. So there you go. No, I love you the no. same. No, all but right, fine. we do have, yeah, you, and you mentioned um, uh, this coming Monday, August 30th, 5 p.m., we're going to be recording a live show. We have a little small limited audience that, of patrons only who are vaccinated, please, if, if that's possible, mm -hmm. to come and uh, view that live. We've got maybe some special guests planned. I don't know. That's in the works. Uh, but all of the location and information detail will be on the Clean Up on Aisle 45 Patreon page, which is, again, uh, patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod and a sincere thank you to has a nephew lives in an attic but isn't the crazy uncle in the attic wait did i leave something out <laughs> that's a good one that's uh, a good one ann l fravor matthew aarons regular size dan <laughs> and my opening argument is this knowledge fight is to is to clean up aisle 45 Excellent. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a big thank you to Andrea Lake, Lynn Beltzer, Claudia E. Levy, Matthew Goolsby, and Adrian. So Yo. thank you all so much for supporting the show. Patreon.com slash aisle45pod. A-I-S-L-E-4-5. P-O-D. Go there right now. Give us a buck. And now, on to the A block. Dun-dun-dun. Woo. All right. So... Today's A block begins with my former professor, Lawrence H. Tribe, who is, and, and I'm not overselling this, 
the foremost expert in the world on U.S. constitutional law. He's been a Harvard law professor since 1968. He has been awarded the only law school that matters, highest honors. Uh, He helped write the constitutions of South Africa, the Czech Republic, the Marshall Islands. He's won 35 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. I have to go through security to get into the U.S. Supreme Court. So (laughs) when I say Lawrence Tribe knows his shit, I mean Lawrence Tribe knows his shit. Yeah, and and not to downplay your academic credentials, but of slightly more import to myself and the listeners is the fact that Lawrence Tribe has written yet another letter to one of his other former students, (laughs) Merrick Garland. Uh, The last op-ed Tribe wrote to Garland was subtitled, The Attorney General Should Not Let Mo Brooks Off the Hook for His Role in the Insurrection. And it worked, remember? The principal argument Tribe made in that op-ed was that the DOJ ought not to defend Mo Brooks pursuant to the Westfall Act or Brooks' role in inciting the 1-6 insurrection. You might recall that you and I discussed the E. Jean Carroll case, which Mm -hmm. is the same statute. And Andrew, you argued pretty strenuously on this show that Department of Justice's position defending Trump in that case was not only correct but unlikely to be repeated for Brooks. And as it turns out, we were right. Uh, I don't know if you credit us or Lawrence Tribe or both, uh, but a few days after the Tribe letter was published in the Boston Globe and worldwide, the Department of Justice took exactly the position urged by Tribe that inciting an insurrection is not within the scope of the duties of a member of Congress, <laughs> and Mo Brooks is on his own. Yeah, and and look, this is the exact right interpretation of law, right? The president is always on the job. It's reasonable. And I get it it, it, it galled our listeners in the E. Jean Carroll case. It upset you personally, right? You, mm-hmm. you and I uh, had, a, had a little bit of a fight and we had to make up. But it, it, it's reasonable for the DOJ to say that giving press interviews is within the scope of your job when you're the president, period, right? But individual members of Congress aren't always on the job. Right. Sometimes they're running for reelection. Sometimes they're just doing stupid shit. Right. This is the Ballinger decision. Right. And I think it's pretty clear if it's about running for reelection, if it's about damage control in your personal life, then the government isn't going to step in. And I guess we can now add to that the category of if it's about inciting an insurrection, that's not a part of your job duties as a member of Congress, even if you're from Alabama. So with that in mind and understanding the tribe is not only the foremost expert on constitutional law, but someone who definitely has the ear of Attorney General Merrick Garland, I want to talk about his August 20th op-ed called Merrick Garland Must Investigate Donald Trump's Attempted Coup, Not for Retribution, But for Deterrence. That's the title. And this begins with the subtitle that, quote, for nearly all of us, a solid factual basis that one has committed a federal crime, much less inciting an insurrection against the government itself, would trigger a criminal investigation. So why the hesitation by the U.S. Attorney General? Yeah, and and look, that's a strong word, hesitation, right? Like, I know if I'm Merrick Garland, I don't want to wake up and read this charge being leveled at me by my former law professor whom I still revere, right? That's why the tribe letter really is genius, right? It begins by pointing out something that might seem obvious but is too often obscured in case law and DOJ decision-making, and that is there's a difference between 
a sitting president and a former one, right? So, yeah, look, there are some reasons to be cautious from a political standpoint about appearing to target the outgoing administration. There's the, you know, banana republic argument. But they really aren't good arguments from a legal perspective. Right, not from the legal perspective. And this letter begins by highlighting an argument that, quote, former presidents should be presumptively shielded from criminal investigation and prosecution unless it's all but certain that a jury would return a conviction, which is a much higher bar than applies to anyone else. Uh, That seems to me to have echoes of the language in the Mueller report, maybe, relying on Office of Legal Counsel memos that just flat out said you can't indict a sitting president as if it were established case law, which it isn't. No law says you can't indict a sitting president, and no court anywhere has ever held as a matter of law that you can't. Yeah, no, that, that that is excellent, right? The arguments made in those OLC memos, and again, remember, Office of Legal Counsel is an executive branch position staffed by the president, right? They really collapse under any kind of serious scrutiny. They basically amount to... It would be a huge burden on a sitting president who needs, you know, his free time to run the country. Um, and and look, we've tried those arguments out in court, right? In Clinton v. Jones, uh, that, that was the crux of the argument made before the Supreme Court. You cannot depose Bill Clinton in the Paula Jones lawsuit because, you know, I mean, he's the president. He doesn't have time to sit for a deposition. And the Supreme Court was like... Yeah, you can you can take a day, right? Like you carve some time out, right? And 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 so you take those arguments and then and and they're rooted really like the, the, the time, it's not just time, but it is it's a it's a public policy separation of powers argument, right? That right. says we do not want Congress and you could imagine, you know, uh, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan on a democratic president, right? Uh, you know, we do not want the other branches of government to be able to derail the president from doing his job or her job, right? But they're answered by either one, a sealed indictment of John Doe, we could call him president number one, right? (laughs) That triggers once the president is out of office, right? You're like, okay, um, we're going to indict you now, uh, but it springs when, when you're out of office. Or an open indictment that then you as attorney general voluntarily toll during the president's term of office. And you say, you name the president. You say, we are going to indict Donald Trump, and um, but we're going to suspend enforcement of this indictment until, uh, you know, November 8th or, you know, or uh, January 21st, 2021. And... Um, and if you're if you're not willing to do that, right, you're basically saying there's no sense in recusing yourself as attorney general, right? There's no sense in hiring a special prosecutor that because there's no determination that you can reach. It's all just a political document. And 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 I don't think that that's the case. Yeah. Right. And so the big obstacle in my mind here is is the basic principle of the rule of law, right? That everyone should be subject to the law, even a former president. Merrick Garland said that multiple times. Mm -hmm. And there are some crimes that only high-level officials like presidents can commit. And and this was the first point Tribe made, right? That that we can impute to sycophants like Mo Brooks and at core to Donald Trump, and that would be an intent to overturn a free and fair election. Yeah, yeah. 
And you can't overstate that, right? To place at risk the idea that this country works by what Tribe calls the tradition of peaceful, lawful succession from one administration to the next, the tradition of it. Yeah, no, that's a damn good argument, right? And that is the central thesis that Tribe is advancing, which is that if this person were not named Trump, right? If they were named Smith, right? We have enough factual evidence right now to at least open an investigation to say, you know, we think that Smith guy is a person of interest in connection with a federal crime. We'd impanel a grand jury. We'd start subpoenaed witnesses. And and like a lot of our listeners, right, Tribe is asking himself, well, why haven't we done that yet for Trump? That, that we know of, right? And, yeah, and, and, and Tribe did answer to that. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and since I answer that question every week, <laughs> uh, I, I agree with uh, Professor Tribe that now is probably the right time to open a case and panel a grand jury if it hasn't been done already and tell Trump he's being investigated in connection with the coordinated effort to overthrow the government of the United States and another very important point to deprive Americans of their civil rights. This is a crime yeah. that a lot of people haven't been talking about. We've been talking about seditious conspiracy and bribery and, uh, you know, uh, all that stuff. But, but this is also to, de this is a civil rights violation to deprive Americans of their votes to count. Because when you try to overturn an election, that's what you're doing. You're depriving Americans of their civil rights. And I really don't uh, get it. I, I don't get to that lightly. Right. I'm yeah. using Rich, Richard Nixon here as a touchstone. That's a, that's a pretty low bar to try to to try to do the, you know, shoot the duck underneath like limbo skate like I used to I, in eighth grade under that bar. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that entirely. Look, the argument that struck me in Tribe's op-ed was not even the basic rule of law point, right? But the idea that this particular crime of inciting an insurrection, right, of encouraging an armed mob to storm the Capitol on 1-6 is, in Tribe's words, a uniquely destabilizing and dangerous category of crimes, crimes directed at preventing the lawful transfer of political power through free, through free and fair elections. So Tribe's argument is because this threatens to undermine democratic government in and of itself, that presents a unique category. And it doesn't matter that it's a former president. It doesn't matter if it's Trump or Smith or anyone. That needs to be job one. Mm. Yeah, and I don't know that I agree with that argument. Tribe talks about how you might give a pass to a former president on what he calls garden variety offenses, financial or otherwise. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, to me, I've, I've prioritized, I've said... Uh, I think you want to go after Trump for his obvious election interference in Georgia, right? With uh, Fonnie yep. Willis, uh, we've detailed. You've detailed on your show how that state's law crime uh, that Trump has plainly com that's a crime in that yeah. the the statute was written for him in this particular case. <laughs> it you know? really, it really was. And, and you know, when you say something like "I just need 11,780 11, votes," I don't care what the real number is, which he which he said, which he does, right? Because yeah. he says on there's tape. a yeah. There's at least 300,000, 400,000 votes, but I only need 11,780. You know, yeah. that's that's a crime. And I would prioritize that over financial tax related crimes that Trump is under investigation for in New York. But I mean, I wouldn't say don't do one and do the other. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, I agree. Democracy over financial stuff. But I'm not I'm I, I still wouldn't give a former president a pass for any crime, any crime. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. So try this on for size, right? 
tribe makes reference to Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon, right? Boo. And he says, yeah, yeah. he says that, look, however misguided that decision was, and, and he doesn't say that, but I, I'm saying it, right? <laughs> At least it wasn't an effort to try and overturn an election or cling to power after defeat, right? And, and Nixon I truly did walk off into the cornfield, right? Like, he became a private citizen. He did not try again. <sighs> I'm not persuaded that's a great argument, okay? Uh, but I do think that there's a really interesting bit where Tribe says that if a president thinks that he's going to be indicted if he loses the election, he will have the incentive to commit even more crimes to make sure he doesn't lose, right? And and Tribe, I, I think it's a pretty strong argument, uses the example of impeachment one, right? Because Trump was terrified that he would lose to Biden and Biden would prosecute him. That led him to do desperate, stupid things to stay in office, like extorting the incoming president of Ukraine to announce a phony investigation into Hunter Biden. You know that story. I do know that story. And, you know, little sidetrack here, Andrew. Today, we found out that Igor, Igor Fruman of the the Parnas and Fruman show. Of Fruman, Parnas and Giuliani, yeah. Is changing his plea. Uh, he's mm. got a he's got a plea change hearing this Wednesday, which uh, I I feel good in assuming means he's changing his plea to guilty. Which I also then subsequently feel good in assuming that he's going to be cooperating uh, uh, with the feds in the Southern District of New York because we know from Marcy Wheeler a month ago, right, uh, uh, that she she got some documents showing that. Prosecutors were coming at Fruman with all of this other evidence that didn't have t- anything to do with a three hundred and twenty-five thousand mm-hmm. dollar campaign finance violation, uh, to, and she thought that ah, I think they're trying to get Fruman to flip. And then, bang! Today we find out he's going to be changing his plea. So you know, w- while it was interesting that Tribe just sort of incited impeachment one here, uh, because. Currently, Rudy Giuliani is under serious investigation in the Southern District of New York. There's been disputes with the special master, Barbara Jones. But, you know, now now we're, we get to see what Lev, what uh, Igor Fruman might have to say. We already know what Lev Parnas has to say. I I cannot wait for that. Right. And and I, I, I love that you bring that out. It sort of feels like the last five years have been waiting for X bad guy to flip, right? And, 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 and usually that's happened by now, right? So um, let's, let's go back to Tribe's argument a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, I, it, it, I want to give the other side, right? Which is, um, on the one hand, there is the argument of if you're going to prosecute a guy when he gets out of office, he's going to do everything in power to stay in office. But... I think I'm persuaded by the counter argument that like when you're talking about Trump, there's nothing right. <laughs> there, yeah. There's nothing he was going to do otherwise anyway. Right. Like Richard Nixon was willing to resign. Right. Trump wasn't. I, I cannot imagine a situation in which Trump would not do everything in his power to hold on to power. Right. And the 2020 election is a pretty good illustration of that. Right. The administration started laying the groundwork with its supporters for years before the 2020 election that it would be illegitimate, right? They uh, dis- they dismantled uh, ballot sorting machines. They wrecked the, post serv- the Postal Service. Like, this is an administration that knew it was going to lose in 2020 and developed Plan B in, I don't know, 2017, 2018? Yeah. 
Oh, I would even go back to 2016 when he yeah. said, "If I lose this election, it's because there it was it was rigged," and yeah. he started talking about rigged elections back then. And we know yeah. WikiLeaks sent a, a, a DM to to Don Jr. saying, "Hey, I have an idea in 2016. If your dad loses, this is what you should do. You should say it was all rigged because then you can start your big media empire and go after the, you know, the fake news thing." So, I mean, this has Ugh. been on on his radar for a long time. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's a fair point you make. So question how do you evaluate the other part of tribe's argument how do we evaluate it that this is a centrist you know a broad-based way of developing a principle that can apply to any president or former president that whenever you have crimes against democracy that you have a higher obligation as attorney general um, that you should in tribe's words pursue with unrelenting zeal the mission of uncovering and holding perpetrators accountable for crimes fitting within that category and a failure to do so is it is a dereliction of duty? Yeah, I, that's a very strong argument in my view, right? And I and I want to emphasize the point that Garland made, right? Which that we made on the show, right? Which is um, we don't know how much is going on behind the scenes, right? It is easy to say until an investigation is announced that nothing is happening, but uh, right? I mean, typically. Federal criminal investigations are kept secret, right? Now, look, we know if Trump had received a target letter, uh, I feel pretty confident that he would not have kept his mouth shut, right? He would have fundraised on it. He can't, right? He's congenitally incapable of doing Mm -hmm. so, right? So there's probably not an open investigation on Trump. There's probably not a grand jury impaneled yet. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there aren't discussions out there. Yeah, and you know there are a lot of folks arguing that there may be, and yep. and yep. and we don't know, and and you know again we don't know what we don't know. But I think I agree with Tribe that this should be job one, capital yeah. J yeah. job, capital O one. Uh, enough talk, right? It's time for action, and it's not just Trump; it's every private citizen or public official, whether in Congress or in the executive branch, who may have played a role. Uh, it's the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys. Uh, Roger Stone, uh, what's the, Alex Jones, uh, Don Trump Jr., Mo Brooks, Rudy Giuliani. And, and we do have some of that infrastructure already in place. Yeah, I agree. And and look, we're going to see. And we will see soon if Tribe has sufficient influence with Merrick Garland to get him to move forward. Right. And I, and, and, and I like the framing of this letter. Right. That the question is whether we extend some kind of additional bonus privilege to former presidents, because I think that there's broad-based public support for not doing that. Right, and regardless of the party or the former yeah. president. Yeah, we'll see. I concur. All right, well, excellent discussion. I'm so glad. I, when I saw that Lawrence Tribe letter came out, come out, I was like, <laughs> oh, he did it with Mo Brooks. He can do it again. Roll I know, dice. I know. Uh, and, and it was it was pretty fast, you know. And, and you know, I've had a lot of discussions with a lot of uh, prosecutors and former prosecutors and former U.S. attorneys. They're like, look, we we he's out on the street. He is a menace to society every day that he's not in jail. And there are actually plenty of perfectly good crimes we could get him on right now. Um, and so I'm I'm just very I was very grateful when I saw that I immediately texted you because I know he was I your know. law professor too I was like dude just look at ah uh, I thought it was the awesomest thing so um, that is the big news for today and we do have a lot more coming up uh, on cleanup uh, as soon as we take a quick break so stay with us we'll be right back. 
Hey, everybody, it's AG for Clean Up on Aisle 45. And today's episode of the show is brought to you by Feels CBD. CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel, right? Stress, anxiety, and pain. If you haven't tried CBD, I highly recommend it. It is safe, organic, and it has been really helpful for me with pain relief, nervousness, and insomnia. Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free. It's delivered directly to your door. CBD has helped me to feel more calm. I'm less sore after workouts. It elevates my mood, and it even helps me feel more relaxed and sleep better. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and you can feel the difference within minutes. The thing to remember about CBD is finding your right dose is important, and everyone's dose is different. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel anytime. It's really simple. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com cleanup, and you'll get 50%, 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash cleanup. Cleanup is all one word. To become a member and get 50% off, automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash cleanup. Everybody, welcome back. Andrew, I have some more environmental cleanup news today that flew under the radar this week for obvious reasons. (laughs) Uh, A widely used pesticide that could cause health issues in children will no longer be used on food in the United States. According to the EPA, they said that last Wednesday, reversing, of course, a Trump era decision not to ban the chemical on food. Yeah, I, I notice you've said the chemical, leaving it to me, right? Uh, look, this is exactly right. So the EPA is revoking all tolerances on chlorpyrifos, right, which is used on crops, including soybeans, broccoli, cauliflower, fruit and nut trees, and also has um, non-food food uses. I, I, I have no idea what that means, right? Uh, the, I mean, the chemical has been associated with potential neurological effects in children. Um, it's, it, it should not be used as a pesticide on stuff we eat. Yeah, yeah, and of course, under then-President Trump, the EPA announced in 2019 it would not ban the pesticide after it concluded there is not sufficient evidence of the chemical's dangers to justify the ban requested by environmental groups and a group of states. So this is more of the scientists finding out science wasn't used to make science-based policy. Train the swamp. Train the... Look, the EPA had banned chlorpyrifos for household uses as early as 2000, right? But allowed uh, commercial agricultural producers to continue using it, right? Uh, The product has been registered for use in the U.S. since 1965. Um, It it is effective against mosquitoes, cockroaches, and fire ants, which are all, you know, pretty nasty things. But um, uh, nevertheless, internationally, uh, other countries and states have restricted use of the pesticide. So internationally, Canada, you can't use it. Uh, and then domestically, New York, California, and Hawaii uh, all have state statutes. Yeah. And apparently in 2017, Scott Pruitt. Oh, I love that guy. Mm, no yeah. Way. What a cool dude. Uh, he ignored a petition from the year 2007 requesting the <laughs> chemical be banned in the U.S. because it could harm brain and nervous system development in children. Uh, but they don't want to get a vaccine. Okay. Uh, all, right, all right. So, look, according to OSHA, exposure to chlorpyrifos can cause a range of symptoms, including 
nausea, vomiting, headaches, dizziness, seizures, paralysis. Hmm. Yeah. All, all good stuff. All great stuff. Um, so, yep, the scientists found some non-science-based policy decisions and uh, reversed them based on science. Way to clean yeah. it up. I love it. Uh, in other news, Stephen Richer, the Maricopa <laughs> County recorder, <laughs> has penned a 38-page letter to Arizona Republicans about the Crazy Times Carnival fraud, which is supposed to have given over their findings by now. I, I did. We're August. Uh, all right. Okay. So. Let's not forget, Richer is staunchly Republican. He supported Martha McSally. He's, I don't know, not willing to lie for the party, right? <laughs> so in this letter, he is hoping to convince the conspiracy theorists in his party, um, I think they're a supermajority, but we'll find out, uh, that there was no election fraud in Maricopa County. So good luck with that. Yeah, and in the letter, he's got footnotes, and he, he brings receipts. Here are some yeah. e excerpts from the letter. This is the most well-written Republican letter I've ever read. I, <laughs> it says, quote, Maricopa County has used the same tabulation vendor and ballot printer and has had many of the same employees for more than 20 years. This team oversaw Maricopa County's vote for Trump in 2016, for Mitt Romney in 2012, for John McCain in 2008, and for G.W. Bush in 2004. <laughs> It administered the election of the continued Republican control of the Arizona State Legislature in 2020. Through all these elections, there had never been a report of a significant tabulation problem or widespread fraud. Yeah, at good arguments. And it continues. After the November 2020 election, appointees from the Republican, Democrat, and I, I don't know, they were bored libertarian parties worked in bipartisan, nonpartisan groups of three to hand count more than 47,000 votes. Those hand counted votes matched the machine count 100%. The county then ran another post-election logic and accuracy test to make sure the machines had not been disrupted in any manner during the election. And again, mind you, the evidence that they were disrupted is Sidney Powell's imagination, right? So the results... <laughs> again matched 100%. And we cannot, as a statistical matter, like, you cannot overstate how implausible that, right? Like, to, to have zero, like, no accidental errors, transmissions, whatever, 100% match. Yeah. Mm -hmm, in both cases. And then he goes on to say, finally, in February 2021, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors hired two professional elections technology companies with many years of experience in tabulation, that's a little shade there for the cyber ninjas. Who have zero. <laughs> cyber ninjas. Uh, they uh, experienced in tabulation equipment to do everything uh, needed to do. The assessment took almost three weeks. We live streamed the entire process, and we had a representative from the Arizona House, the Arizona Senate, and the Secretary of State's office in regular attendance. The auditors found no problems with the equipment, no manipulation of the software code, no malware, and no connection to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Those reports are publicly available. Yeah, God help me, Stephen Richer. Quote, I will keep fighting for conservatism, and there are many things I would do for the Republican candidate for president, but I won't lie about the election, right? Like, I, are you hearing Meatloaf playing in the background? Yeah. Like, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I would do anything for Trump, but I won't, <laughs> but I won't do, do that. that. 
Uh, and you know, Bard did the same thing, right? Like, hey, I'll be your fucking Huckleberry the whole entire time and talk about how mail-in voting is a giant pile of shit, but I can't fabricate fraud out of thin air, you dummy. No! Uh, now, the report on the fraud findings was due Monday. But as of this recording, yeah, we still haven't seen the report, right? Trump and others have repeatedly mentioned, by the way, the number 160,000 in all of his rallies, 160,000 improper votes in Maricopa County. That's what I imagine that the report will say uh, if they say they found any fraud at all. Yeah, and that number is pulled out of Rudy Giuliani's ass, right? Like, that's not a real... Anyway, so House Democrats on Monday threatened to take legal action against the cyber ninjas. They accused the firm of obstructing a congressional investigation by refusing to produce documents demanded by the committee last month. Uh, so in a four-page letter, um, the chairwoman of the House Oversight Committee, uh, uh, Representative Carolyn Maloney from New York, and my personal crush, yes. Jamie Raskin, mm -hmm. uh, used to be my representative when I lived in uh, Montgomery County. Nice. He wrote that Cyber Ninjas had, quote, raised a litany of unjustified objections to the panel and advised Logan to end your obstruction immediately and comply with the committee's requests. Hmm. Yeah, they previously sent a letter to Logan on July 14th, too, requesting documents and communications as part of their investigation into the firm's, quote, highly unusual audit. It's <laughs> a, nice, <laughs> a nice way to say it. That is uh, a after, good way to say it. Yeah, after being granted an extension, the firm was required to produce the documents by August 9th, they failed to produce what the House asked for. Yeah, and with regards to the report due today, and again, this is almost 9 o'clock when we're recording this, right, 9 p.m., uh, allow me to quote a statement from Arizona Republican President Karen Fan. Quote, the team expected to have the full draft ready for the Senate today, but unfortunately, Cyber Ninja's D CEO, Doug Logan, and two other members of the five-person audit team have tested positive for COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, I'm she, pro. Occasionally, I'm pro-COVID. This is, this is actually really funny because she goes on to say that the team will now meet Wednesday, that's today when you hear this show, to begin reviewing the first part of the draft report. Then when they get the rest of the report, they'll meet again at some unspecified future date. Then, after that, they'll review the findings, and then they'll send it to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, it's House Oversight who wants this, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you want a little more hilarity, Ben, ben Giles, who's a reporter, asked Ken mm -hmm. Bennett, who's former GOP uh, in Arizona, who the other members? Because because Karen Fan mentions a five member audit team. He's, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who are, the, who are the other members? Ben said, "I don't know. I thought there were nine. Maybe ask, <laughs> maybe ask Karen Fan." To which Rachel Maddow replied, "Maybe you should do a recount." <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Now, Karen oh. Karen Fan did get back to Ben Giles saying she didn't know who the other ones were, uh, other than they were just Doug Logan contractors, Cyber Ninja contractors preparing the reports. So that's a little bit of hilarity. Uh, we're not going to get the report now. I I said pro I, my tweet was maybe the report tested positive for bullshit. Um, <laughs> nice, nice. But uh, apparently, uh, Doug Logan, CEO of Cyber Ninjas, has contracted COVID, and and also they are quite sick. So, 
um, she did add that. It's not just that they tested positive. Um, if they're quite sick, uh, I don't know if they were vaccinated or not, um, but they do have pretty severe symptoms, according to the president of the Republican Senate in Arizona. I It's my first day. I, yeah, whatever. The dog ate yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> this is just... This is why you do not allow private entities to just do a random, quote, recount because you don't like the way an election turned out. I mean, literally, this is unprecedented in American history. Anyway. Can, can we get Lawrence Tribe to write a letter to Merrick Garland to sue oh, the, oh, <laughs> the Arizona Republican Senate? Because, Stop. I mean, they uh, uh, Pam, what was her name? Pam... Carlin sent a, a really strongly worded letter, and I was expecting a lawsuit to follow that yeah. that, that that mimicked the what was in the letter. Like you're going door to door. That's voter intimidation. You can't. There was a chain of custody issue with the ballots. Now copies of the ballots have been sent to a cabin in Montana. Like what the fuck? Crazy times, yeah. Carnival. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but we will keep an eye on it for you. Uh, I just wanted to share that little bit of news uh, today. And we do have uh, your favorite segment coming up next, Andrew. <laughs> we just have to Can't take... Can't wait. All right. Just, yeah, let's get these ads out of the way. Yeah, let's take a quick break. Everybody, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Allison for Clean Up on Aisle 45. I hope everyone's been having a good summer. Uh, I've been loving going to the beach and going to the pool again. It's been amazing. There's so many fun things to do this summer, but overpaying for home and auto insurance isn't one of them. You know, recently I wanted to drag all of my policies out of USAA because they advertise on Tucker Carlson's show. So I went to Policy Genius to find the best price. They can help look for similar coverage to what you have now. Uh, and they make it easy to compare home and auto insurance rates all in one place. They've saved customers an average of 12 $1,250 a year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance before. Their team will handle all the paperwork to set up your new policy and switch you over from your current one. And getting started is easy. You just head to policygenius.com, answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property, and then Policy Genius takes it from there. They do all the legwork. They compare rates for America's top insurers from Progressive to Allstate to find the lowest quotes for you. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, too, by including bundling your home and auto policies. If they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they will switch you over for free. You don't have to do it yourself. Their top-notch service has earned PolicyGenius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. So head to PolicyGenius.com to get started right now. PolicyGenius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. All right. Welcome back, everyone. It is time for my favorite segment and yours, Comings and Goings. And we have some new Biden nominees to announce. First up, Ooh. in a story from the New York Times, <clears throat> Biden nominates... Burns and Emmanuel, Rahm Emanuel, to be his yep. ambassadors to China and Japan, with the lead saying the president has rolled out dozens of ambassador nominees, but so far only one has been confirmed by the Senate. Yep. And and we talked about this last week, that it there is an ongoing battle between the administration nominating folks and, you know, the Senate doing everything it, they can uh, to, to schedule hearings. So... Let's let's start with Nicholas Burns, <laughs> veteran foreign service officer and former ambassador to NATO, who Biden nominated to be the ambassador to China last Friday. Right. So according to The New York Times, Burns is, quote, poised to fill a diplomatic vacuum as relations between China and the U.S. worsen. I thought Joe Biden was a Chinese puppet. How could that be happening? Anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, no, definitely. But, I mean, if you do remember last month, there was a particularly tense meeting between China mm -hmm. and the U.S., which resulted in, uh, like, public renunciations. And at that time, Biden was considering 
either Burns or Rahm Emanuel for the post. But the diplomatic world was like, please let it be Burns. Please yep. don't send Rahm Emanuel. Uh, Burns said in a statement about his appointment, I welcome this opportunity to work on behalf of the president and the American people on the strategic competition between the U.S. and the PRC, People's Republic of China, as well as other difficult and complex challenges we face at this critical juncture in our relationship. Yeah, and, and that's the right result, right? So that leaves us with Rahm Emanuel. You know who Rahm Emanuel is, right? Former mayor of Chicago, Obama's first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, right? According to the Times, Biden is a longtime friend of Emanuel, right? Was considering him for a cabinet position. Um, but that speculation uh, didn't make the progressive wing of the Democratic Party particularly happy. Um, particularly due to Emanuel's handling of the fatal shooting of Laquan McDonald by a Chicago police officer in 2014, and, you know, generally Rahm Emanuel being a, you know, centrist DNC hack. So, <laughs> Yeah, but Pelosi praised the pick, though. She said he's a leader of immense experience and effectiveness, uh, which is, I guess, I guess, a, I guess it's a compliment. Uh, he's, he's, well, uh, what can I say about Rahm Emanuel? He's effective. <laughs> when, when I'm, when I'm fishing for compliments, he, I, I hope not to get oxygen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope not to get effective back. Right. Uh, Rahm said in a statement, the alliance between the United States and Japan is the cornerstone of peace and prosperity in a free and open Indo-Pacific. And I would proudly represent our nation with one of our most critical global allies in one of the most critical geopolitical regions. I don't know, Andrew. <laughs> look here's the thing okay I, it, it, if you are from the progressive wing of the democratic party and if you're listening to the show you probably are there are a ton of people like this right you cannot come into office and say uh Rahm Emanuel gets to be associate deputy semi-ambassador to the Maldives on opposite Tuesdays right like these are people who are Big time Democratic movers and shakers. And uh, it, the fact that Biden said, you know what, I'm not going to take somebody who is lobbying and pushing hard and put them in the most crucial role, which is ambassador to China, it, it should give you some confidence, right? Do I, I mean, like I guess, Rahm Emanuel? Yeah, you go ahead. Yeah. I guess at least he didn't loan him $16 million. Yeah, Stephen Cock. Right. Yeah. It, 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 these people are longstanding Democratic financial backers. They need to be paid off with patronage positions. If you can't handle that, that our political system produces that, then you're probably 13 years old, right? Like, I mean, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to insult you. Or, but or like, you know about it, and you're just aggravated about the fact that that's how it yeah, works, and it shouldn't work that way. It, I agree with you, right? It, 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 we should not have a patronage system. I Correct. don't like it. I but, think if you're compiling a list of grievances against Joe Biden, this should be low on your list. Yeah, I concur. But on the list, on the list, you can be pissed off about it. I don't <laughs> like it either. All right. So also on Friday, now we're going to happier news, right? Biden nominated Michael Battle, career foreign service official, to be the ambassador of Tanzania, right? And he announced five more key nominations. First up, Scott A. Nathan, who Biden tapped for CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, 
Um, for nearly two decades, Nathan worked as a partner, management committee member, and the chief risk officer of the Baupost Group, right? Um, he entered public service during the Obama-Biden administration, first as the special representative for commercial and business affairs at the Department of State, and then later as associate director for general government programs at OMB. Hmm. Oh, good old Office of Management and Budget. That needed some cleaning up. Mm-hmm. Um, next is Vakar Ahmad, who Biden nominated for Assistant Secretary for Administration and Chief Financial Officer at the Department of Commerce. Uh, he served as the Deputy Chief Financial Officer of the U.S. House of Representatives over the past four years. I didn't know we had one. And he yeah. provided counsel to the Department of Homeland Security's senior leadership on the budget decision making and oversight on nearly 70, a $70 billion budget of its uh, component agencies. That's huge. $70 billion is a huge budget. Uh, mm-hmm. His leadership enabled DHS to successfully meet response and recovery efforts to natural disasters, thwart cybersecurity threats, uh, clean up the largest maritime oil spill in U.S. history, uh, and recapitalize critical multi-billion dollar national security assets. And previously, he served as a senior aide to the chairman for the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Labor, Health and Human Services, Education, and other related agencies. So he's got quite hmm. a resume. Great, great pick. <laughs> okay, next up, Matt Axelrod. As far as I know, no relation, right? for Assistant Secretary for the Export Enforcement at the Department of Commerce, right? This is a longtime public servant, deep criminal and national security enforcement experience, spent over 13 years at DOJ during the Obama-Biden administration. Axelrod served as the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General, where he advised DOJ's criminal and national security enforcement on, on, on criminal and national security enforcement matters, and supervised staff of 25 attorneys. Prior to that, uh, he was a career federal prosecutor for over a decade. I didn't know we had a paydag yeah. until Trump's corrupt paydag, O'Callaghan, <laughs> came strutting his beard out for all to see. Uh, yeah, Principal Assistant <laughs> Deputy Attorney General, paydag. It just reminds me of of uh, Dragnet, P-A-G-A-N, People Against Goodness <laughs> and Normalcy. Pagan. We just like to dance in our goatskin pants. <laughs> Put on your goat leggings. Try to blend in. Uh, <laughs> next up is Biden's nominee for Assistant Secretary for Financial Resources at Health and Human Services. This is Robert Gordon. He's a senior counselor at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and a senior advisor for Poverty Solutions at the University mm. of Michigan, which is awesome. He has worked as a key government pos- in, in key government positions across three decades. Most recently, he served as a director of the Department of Health and Human Services for the state of Michigan. Gordon also has worked as a senior vice president for strategy and finance at the college board and is now a law guardian for children in abuse and neglect proceedings. That's amazing. In addition to the University of Michigan, he has been a fellow at the Urban Institute, the Brookings Institution, and the Center for American Progress. Everything yeah. that you hear on, a, on an hourly basis when you listen to NPR. <laughs> yeah, no, a solid progressive pick. Anyway, finally... We have the nominee for director for the National Park Service in the Department of the Interior. That is Charles Sams. So deep breath as I go through his credentials. He currently serves as a council member to the Northwest Power and Conservation Council as appointed by Oregon Governor Kate Brown. Sams has worked in state and tribal governments and the nonprofit National Resource and Conservation Management fields for over 25 years. Previous roles include Deputy Executive Director for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, CTUIR, 
communications director for the CTUIR, environmental health and safety officer, planner of the tribal planning office for the CTUIR, president, chief executive officer of the Indian Country Conservancy, executive director for the Umatilla Tribal Community Foundation, national director of the tribal and native lands program for the Trust for the Public Land, executive director for the Community Energy Project, and president, CEO of Earth Conservation Corps. You gotta be happy with that nominee. And mm. um, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. And and that's a big post, too. National <laughs> Parks yeah. in Department of the Interior under Deb Holland. That's going to be an amazing team. And I can't wait to see what they do, uh, it, provided he's confirmed by the Senate <laughs> sometime the in the next time? three years. Yeah, we had somebody uh, who, who had an expertise in, in Indian relations at a major mm-hmm. post, yeah. Yeah, and we're, and we're almost at the uh, the midterms, and we still we still can't get these fucking Senate to confirm uh. these people. All right. Uh, oh, and if that weren't enough, by the way, he's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown and Whitman College. <laughs> sort of, so, except you know, I hate Georgetown, but that's a, that's I know, another story. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, but welcome aboard. Get to work. Yep, absolutely. And that is our comings and going segment. Uh, it's been fun, Andrew, today. This has been a good show. We had some good news, some interesting news. I'm really excited about the Lawrence Tribe letter and see how Merrick Garland responds to it. Unless, you know, it could be a, just a phone call like, I'm already on it. Leave me alone. You know, <laughs> who knows? I mean, we, we might not hear. So please be prepared not to hear. <laughs> you might not hear. That's all I just want to tell everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All I know is uh, I feel very happy with the overall direction of this administration, right? And that's, you know, that that's what you can ask for. Hold their feet to the fire. Uh, that's what Lawrence Tribe is doing. Um, be skeptical when, you know, they put a hack like Rob Amanda. That's what we're doing. Uh, but, um, but, but don't let that demotivate you. Don't let anybody tell you that, you know, a single item is... You know, the the pass fail on whether Joe Biden is the same as Donald Trump. That's idiotic. Yeah. And um, yeah. Don't throw the don't throw the Biden out with the bathwater. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Or, or as uh, Glenn Kirshner says, they're missing the 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 trees and forest for the trees. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. All right, that is our show. Thanks again to our patrons. We will see you Monday at five. If you RSVP on the Patreon page, that's Patreon.com/slash Aisle Forty Five Pod A I S L E Four Five P O D. A buck an episode gets you in, my friends. Ooh. Yeah, we're going to record that show live from D.C., the heart of it all. Um, and uh, I'm that was, You almost had like an Alex Jones kind of inflection on that. That was pretty great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've been, I've been taking... The heart of it all. I've been taking... <laughs> I'm eating jalapenos out of the jar here. I've been taking supplements. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to know what that would possibly mean. Anyway, we are really looking forward. I'm I, it, AG, I am super looking forward just to be able to see you in person. And, uh, and obviously, meeting our listeners is amazing. Um, you know... Be vaccinated, mask up, be socially responsible, uh, but uh, but we love you. Yeah, and and it'll be a mask-free event once we're all in and we're all vaccinated. So just uh, that's what's happening, and I can't wait to do it, everybody, until next week. Thank you so much. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. 
Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 